Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, episode 12, where we're traveling to 1954 and the 11th winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, Quincy Porter, for his orchestral piece with two pianos, Concerto Concertante. So, Dave, tell me what you know about Quincy Porter. you come across his name before? Very interesting. I had uh, not, uh, maybe vaguely heard of him, one of those names that gets mentioned, uh, Mm -hmm. but... uh, knew next to nothing about him until we were preparing for this podcast and then found out that he is a Yale guy and he had to have been one of Horatio Parker's last uh, Yale students because Horatio Parker died in 1919. And, uh, and then That's the year Porter graduated from Yale. Yes, so he had to have been his last student or one of his last uh, real students. So A great legacy that includes Charles E. I. Correct, 1947's no winner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So very little knowledge about him. He's, I think he's fitting into the, would you say the Gail Kubik uh, mode here of people? No, I think he's, if you look back at our history for me, he's uh, Walter Piston. Ah, ah, okay. He's in that kind of category for me. Uh, I knew about him just because uh, of his time when he came back to Yale, not when he was a student, but he came back to Yale later. And when he was teaching there is when Harry Parch was making his circuit around New England. And Porter was one of the people, like Howard Hansen, who was supportive of him and wanted him to come perform. So that's Parch went and performed at Yale in the early 1940s, and that's why, is because of Quincy Porter. So I had come across his name, and I actually went to Yale and looked through his papers just to see what he had about Harry Parch. That's what I knew about him was this connection. I had not heard actually any of his music up until this point, because when you're writing a dissertation, right, you're so focused on that one thing. So I didn't uh, take the time to listen to his music. So this is some of the first music of his I've actually listened to. I find it so interesting. I mean, it's sort of unfortunate that Harry Parch didn't win a Pulitzer Prize, so we can't talk about him in this context. But I find it fascinating that a lot of the composers we've talked about so far, who are seem very remote from him aesthetically, are supportive of him. And and Quincy Porter seems to fit that mold as a very academic, highly trained European right. style composer. Well, I think what we're finding, and this is kind of, well, this is what I've surmised is that uh, Harry Parch really wanted, at the beginning of his career, to be accepted by the, the musical establishment. So he wanted the people in the know who could get him grants and get him support. And so the people who he went to are the people who are winning Pulitzers, because I think we found over the, what now, dozen Pulitzers that we've explored, that it's a very incestuous prize yeah. at the beginning, where if you know people and you're in the right style and you're in the Northeast, basically, you have a chance at winning a Pulitzer, and they kind of pass it around. I mean, even next time, we're going to come back to Minotti. Yeah, yeah. They, they pass this award around going, oh, I guess it's Quincy's turn. <laughs> he gets the Pulitzer this year. It's kind of the way it's beginning to kind of play out as we're seeing. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Like, yeah, if you're trying to, you're an up-and-coming person, you usually find where the, the power players are and and get your way in, so that would make sense. But it, again, like Gail Kubik, Quincy Porter is another highly trained, really, you know, great, like a, a s- seriously New England, us, mm-hmm. very like uh, establishment kind of person. 
and uh, it's kind of fascinating just to see how the paths they take and where they go. And so we should talk. Well, they go yeah. to the same people. You're right. right? right. So <laughs> they go to France. All these composers go to France. Yep. They study with Nadia Boulanger. Except Porter didn't, right? He was Porter did not. Yeah. Who did Porter study with? Uh, Vincent Dandie was, I think. Which is a very different kind of uh, yeah. uh, decision on his part. Yeah. Yeah, as well as Ernst Bloch. And, right. Uh, so kind of a different background here. He was... Uh, it t attended Yale, as we know, and graduated, as you said, in 1919. Then he, uh, in 1922, he joined a string quartet as a violist and became uh, quite a, a big fan of the string quartet. In fact, ended up writing nine string quartets. And uh, I well, guess and the viola has a, a part since he writes, you know, probably his most performed work now is the viola concerto. Mm -hmm. That's what he's known for. Exactly, exactly. So it's pretty interesting background, but just going over to study, uh, he won prizes at, at Yale, and then he eventually became head of the theory department. Now here are some universities that are still well-known, Cleveland Institute of Music, mm -hmm. and became head of the theory department. I love that. They called it the <laughs> theory department back then. And then got a Guggenheim Fellowship. Uh, and To study, to, to compose yep. in Paris. Mm-hmm. The Guggenheim, then came back, joined the music faculty at Vassar College in New York, where he became professor of music and conductor of the orchestra. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Then went to, became dean of New England Conservatory, and then returned, as you said, to Yale, where he stayed the rest of his life. So, I mean, really doing the academic circuit. In yeah. Yeah. Well, and doing the professor of music position, it wasn't as specialized as we see today, where he could teach theory at one school and teach composition at another and conduct at another. So that's a much more common kind of profile of a academic music professor of the time. Yeah, yeah. So <coughs> some of the funny stories, I guess, that happened at Yale, uh, we both read about this, that there was another famous German composer who came to America to <laughs> teach at Yale, Paul Hindemith, and apparently he and Porter just were completely at odds. And oil and water. <laughs> oil and water, yeah. And I think it makes sense, even though, as when we talk about the piece, the I think there's some, maybe some similarities compositionally, mm -hmm. but aesthetically, yeah, you've got you know, Hindemith, the uber-German, serious German right. composer, and then you've got Porter, who went to France and studied with very French, uh, with French composers with a French aesthetic. So uh, that you can see why they didn't, meld too well right that's yeah so again a very distinguished like gail kubik like piston they all uh, come from a very distinguished long line of great pedigrees and great jobs and and one last thing i think that should be noted the when i was a young composer uh, at the university of illinois i remember joining the american music center which right. was yeah which uh porter co-founded with Aaron Copeland, and so there, and Yado Artist Colony and Music exactly. Festival. Yeah, so really, like you've said many times, a lot of these winners were it was sort of self self fulfilling here because they would form these organizations and then get their own to win and and do a lot for composers. And he Porter's one of those. Well, it was one of the things at the time these institutions needed to be established because American music didn't have them before. And so I think you go through a period where it is kind of <laughs> rewarding each other for 
putting these things together, but it, it made enough of a nucleus that we can have the culture that we have today that we really wouldn't have without this. But us looking back on it now, we can look out and say, you know, we talk about Harry Parch, the last episode where we talked about the non-winner, <laughs> that would have been a perfect year for Harry Parch to win for Castor and Pollux, which today is one of his most oh. <laughs> recognized pieces. That's the year it came out, so it could have been a winner. Hmm. But alas, not a New England composer connected no. with these institutions, and so... Yeah. In 53, unable to win. Unfortunately. Well, let's talk a little bit about the, um, the piece itself, again, to get a little bit behind the notes. Behind the notes. So this is a work that we don't have a lot of information <laughs> on. I'm sensing a theme we've had the last few episodes here. <laughs> At least with Gail Kubik, we could talk about the... Uh, the movie that it was based That's on. That's true. And we look at this piece, which is uh, called a uh, concerto concertante, sometimes called concerto for two pianos. Mm -hmm. But it's a commission by the Louisville Orchestra in 1952. So it's already just in terms of its premiere outside what we've been looking at in terms of the kind of New York orbit. So we don't have a lot of the New York critics talking about its premiere because it wasn't premiered there. Right. It was, it was premiered on, let's see, we, uh, there's not an exact date of this concert, strangely enough. We have the program for the Louisville Orchestra. It was programmed, it says March 17th and 18th, 1953, so one of those days. And we have, here's the concert of this, uh, where this piece was, Ballet Suite by Gretry. Okay. Uh, concerto for two <laughs> pianos and orchestra. And first public performance, it's dedicated to the Steinway Centennial. So there's a little piece of information. So why you would have the two pianos. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It was commissioned by Louisville. And then after intermission was the Schubert Great uh, Ninth Symphony. So kind of an interesting program there. Uh, but the I like two piano orchestra, uh, two piano and orchestra pieces. Uh, I think of the the Poulenc Concerto is kind of oh, a great yeah. one, yeah. And so this fits into that sort of mold, uh, but very um, abstract. I mean, it's kind of a, it's harder to talk about a piece like this because there's not a lot of information and it's very, the, the information in the score is very generic, Largo, Allegro, not much to go on. Well, and it's in one movement, which yes. also makes it a little bit difficult because we can't split it out. Um, it does start slow and <laughs> move to a fast sec. I mean, right, it follows what you would expect in terms of the movements. It's just that he's kind of shoved them in. And maybe we should listen to where that, um, that allegro kind of takes off where after the beginning it gets going and you can hear some of the interplay between the two pianists and the orchestra for a little bit. So 
So, yeah, so we got to hear a little bit of the transition there. If you look, at the uh, according to the score itself, the it's marked lento, poco allegro, lento, allegro, lento, allegro. <laughs> so back and forth, slow, fast, slow, fast, slow, fast. And you, you, there's a lot of repetition, a lot of motivic ideas. Mm -hmm. And the slow part, it, they, they, it is very seamless, I think. Sometimes you don't even know it's happening. Uh, but what? How do you describe the differences between the slow and the fast, or like what's the character maybe of each? So for me, every time you go into those allegro sections, that's where you get the really interesting, to me, the interesting parts. The slow parts are yeah, kind of me too. dull for me. <laughs> me too. <laughs> <laughs> but the allegro, you get. Uh, he uses the pianos in dialogue very well, mm -hmm. and I like the kind of interplay with the two pianos. Sometimes you can't even tell that. You're, you're listening to it without seeing it, and you're wondering how in the world are the two pianos doing this together? So sometimes it sounds like one massive piano and sometimes the two in dialogue, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I enjoyed that aspect of it, the way that he used the pianos in dialogue. Um, but the slow parts, I thought, just kind of dragged. <laughs> they were draggy, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, because the piece runs about almost 16 about, minutes yeah, or 15 minutes, and it, it it, it, every time it gets going, it feels like it's going to go somewhere, and then it pulls back. It and pulls back. <laughs> and it, uh, okay, another lento. Uh, and to me, it fits very much in the, the reason I mentioned Walter Piston earlier, because it fits kind of in the style, I think, of Piston that we had talked about with Piston, in that uh, the craftsmanship is just outstanding. Yes. The orchestration, he uses the orchestra beautifully. Um, he writes very well on idiomatic for the piano. But even though the craftsmanship is so exacting, to me, the other side of it, the kind of expressive emotive quality, doesn't come through as strongly. It's a little academic sounding to- It's a little dry. A little dry, yeah, yeah. And that could be, I think, because he was a master of craft. He wrote a book, I'd like to find this actually, but he wrote a book on fugue. And you can tell, because uh, it's very contrapuntal, Mm -hmm. a very a lot of lines going back and forth and development fragmentation augmentation all the contrapuntal techniques it's uh, his his music has been described as tonal with bits of chromaticism and then some some yeah, clashes which i think is good and that fits the piston mold too actually a lot of well, our it's composers a very, it's a very american neoclassic sound mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so Still wanting to have a tonal center, but recognizing that you're writing in the 1950s. Yeah. And so the dissonance is accepted and even encouraged. And so it's like they sprinkle that little bit of dissonance in there. But underneath, they're really tonal composers using tonal forms. Mm -hmm. Right. So kind of the neoclassic, that's a great way to discuss a very neoclassic uh, with the, with, yeah, sort of astringent parts here and there that just come in and bite, especially in the fast part where it's very rhythmic. Right. Very uh, dissonant, lots of lines overlapping and things. And that, like you, I did enjoy those parts. And I Well, and they were similar to going back to the Gail Kubik from two episodes ago. Yeah. Those sections have a lot of similarity in terms of the up-tempo and the, the bite that they're given. Uh, and like you were saying, the way that the lines overlap, there's a lot of connection there. For me, it just doesn't go, let's go all the way back to Hansen. It's great that we have the yeah. connections now we can make, have we built up this repertoire. But going back to the Hansen, and the Hansen is just so... Um, Beautifully crafted, but also has that emotive quality right. that really kind of drags you. Even though it's, it is very academic and it has those contrapuntal lines, mm -hmm. Hanson was able to kind of transcend 
the craft to get to something a little bit higher. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's a difference here than that we've than we've seen in the past few. Uh, it it's it's tough. I, I do you think this is more of a French sound because I don't I don't sense that particularly. I don't see it as a French sound. No. No, for being a francophile, since he was in studying in France and went went to Paris for his Guggenheim and was very obviously influenced by French. Style. Well, but evidently he wrote this piece while he was in Florence, Italy. Yeah. So, <laughs> so maybe he was inspired, but I don't know that it sounds mid-century Italian either. So, no. yeah, I don't know. It, it's a kind of a hybrid. But I, it's it. If if someone were to play it, if you played it to somebody who knows 20th century music well, I think it's pretty easy to peg it as mid. 19, mid 1900s, 1950s, neoclassic American. It just kind of has all the traits of that sound. Yeah, if you're going to kind of hold up a poster child, this is yeah. the sound that yeah. that kind of has become the lingua franca of that time period and that style. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's time to <coughs> see if it's a hit or a miss. <laughs> yes. <laughs> hit or miss. All right, I'm going to let you go first because you've been more circumscribed in your. Ooh, <laughs> well. Uh, opinions. This piece took me a while to get into. I had to listen to it about four or five times to figure it out and make any sense of it. And then after doing so, I would say it's a hit for me. Uh, at least, uh, and I, I'll qualify that by saying at least it makes me want to seek out more of of uh, Porter's music. Mm -hmm. And maybe part of it is nostalgic because I want to see he was a Horatio Parker student, and <laughs> you know he's got that that lineage, uh, but but there was enough in here I think that was interesting to me, and I do have a soft spot for that rhythmic, fast, uh, right. contrapuntal neoclassic sound of the Americanists. So, I, and I like two piano pieces, so I think probably it's a hit, uh, maybe like a seven out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting really specific yeah, this time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How about for you? Well, so I also have, as we talked about in previous episodes, I have a soft spot for that rhythmic, contrapuntal, fast, neoclassic sound. And I also enjoy two piano. I, I, enjo I enjoy piano concerti. They're just, yeah. it's one of my favorite genres to listen to. But for me, this was a miss. So if we're going to do your, your scale, <laughs> rankings here. Yeah, yeah. your rankings, I'm like a 3.5 here. Ooh, ooh, ouch. Maybe a 4. <laughs> I, I just never really got into it. Yeah. Like I could see and intellectually understand it. It just didn't kind of reach in and grab me. Now maybe if I had listened to it five or six times like <laughs> you, it would have uh, kind of sunk in. Concentrated listening. Yeah. Well, but the problem was that I didn't want to dedicate that amount of time to listening to it. Right. And I think that becomes partially the, the issue of my ranking for it. That's true. And I, I have to admit it was because of the Parker and the Ives and that, that did make me want to know more. So I probably yeah. would have been less enamored uh, if I, or less inspired to listen to it as much but uh, but his you know I, it gets good review like the the viola concerto you mentioned mm -hmm. and the string quartets they've all been recorded on the naxos american series and so I, there's a lot there that may be of interest i just uh, yeah. uh, i'd be curious i'll try another piece and see how it is but well you know the one thing we haven't talked about what did Chalmers Clifton have to say about this work? Well, that's right. Uh, <laughs> the reason we didn't talk about it is because Chalmers Clifton had nothing to say about it, that's unfortunately. Right. It's all lost to history. Yeah, so all we have for the 1954 award by Quincy W. Porter is 
that the, the, the line here, since the 1954 jury report is missing in the Pulitzer Prize office at Columbia, it is impossible to give the names of the other finalists in, in this award category, and we have no letter from our good friend Chalmers Clifton either. So very disappointing, especially after the big scandal the year before. That's right. With all the, with Joseph Wood and the, the whole debacle of not even not getting it, not even awarding it. Yeah, exactly. And so then they lost it the next year and suddenly, okay, Quincy, you're up next. So you're the winner. Well, but I think it kind of is, you know, it's indicative of the reception this piece has received since its initial premiere. And there's one recording of it. <laughs> it doesn't regularly get performed. Um, I mean, in terms of the reputation of the Pulitzers, this is near the bottom in terms yeah. of how many people have performed it or even talked about it. People don't do a lot of research on Quincy Porter. All the other composers we talked about up until now, there was a lot of background that we could look into. There just isn't for Quincy Porter. No, we've had a real dry spell from, from Douglas Moore, Giants in the Earth, with having not, not even a recording. Right. With Gail Kubik, just one recording, uh, and a maybe a little bit more music, but or more information, but still mm -hmm. not much. And now this piece, it's again, very few recordings or information about it so it's yeah it's a weird dry spell here strange it, it, it was just well, like we have the fanfare of the first couple of years yeah where they had some clear hits yep. with appalachian spring and with the ives third yeah I mean, handsome those are all, yeah those are some big pieces that are still performed and everyone was talking about the pulitzer because it was new and now i think we've hit the period where people aren't talking about it as much <laughs> and it just isn't in the in the water as much as it was in the late 1940s. Mm -hmm. And so we'll have to see what happens going forward if there's a kickback up for the Pulitzer to be re-examined and for these pieces to begin to make a cultural impact or if we're in for a long dry spell. Yeah, yeah. Well, it'll be interesting because the next one we're going to be going back to is one of our favorites that we already talked about, so Minotti again. So I don't well, know. The first repeat winner. First repeat winner, that's right. And with it, not the last, as we'll get to talk about. We have a few more repeaters, but uh, yeah. Some multiple times. Multiple times, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Well, that's it for this episode of Hearing the Pulitzers. As always, you can find more about this project at our website, hearingthepulitzers.com, where we'll also find links and a short bibliography, what we can find about <laughs> Prince Porter. Also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at HPulitzers for links and trivia between episodes. Finally, join us next episode. We'll be returning to Giancarlo Minotti, this time for his opera, The Saint of Bleecker Street. Until then, keep listening. Mm -hmm.